Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. Nemo and Jasmine are here to give you episode eight of season two. We are running through this season with speed running. Nemo, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I thought like we've talked about a couple of things since we like just started talking tonight to record, but I feel like we're in our like performing stage of the podcast. I think that's why it's moving so fast because we're like, we're in this, we're like, you got it, you got it. Like we know our roles and we just move. So how are you today? I'm good. It felt like spring. It was a spring <laughs> day outside. It was like 50 degrees. Nemo says she didn't need her scarf, her hat, her gloves. Your muffs. I do all that. (laughs) It was wonderful. So I'm so excited for today's episode because we are going to be interviewing Charles T. Brown of Equitable Cities. This episode is going to be around bicycle and pedestrian equity. So thinking about active transportation, the way that people can commute throughout their communities and the challenges that different populations face in doing so. I'm going to start the episode by reading through Charles's bio and then we'll jump right into the questions. So Charles T. Brown is the founder and principal of Equitable Cities, a minority and veteran-owned urban planning, public policy research firm focused at the intersection of transportation, health, and equity. He is also an adjunct professor at the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. Charles is an award-winning expert in planning and policy and has been interviewed by several notable outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Vice, and Bloomberg City Lab. He is highly regarded as a keynote speaker and leads workshops on transportation, health, and equity for audiences worldwide. Charles previously served as senior researcher with the Allen and Voorhees Transportation Center at Rutgers University, where he authored several groundbreaking national and local studies that redefined how experts analyze the role of race and racism in transportation and mobility. In 2020, Charles was part of the inaugural class of Public Voices Fellowship on the Climate Crisis, which is managed by the Yale School of the Environment. Charles is a military veteran and recipient of the Mississippi Commendation Medal and Global War on Terrorism Service Medal. He has a Master's of Public Administration and a Graduate Certificate in Urban and Regional Planning from University of Central Florida, where he received the 2020 Alumni Achievement Award for Public Administration. He also has a Bachelor's of Science and Management degree from Belhaven College, where he received the James W. Park Academic Achievement Award. He is a certified instructor with the League of American Bicyclists, received a crime prevention through environmental design professional designation, CPD, from the National Institute on Crime Prevention, and is also a proud and active member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Hey, Charles, thank you so much for joining the podcast with me and Nemo. We are so excited to have you here. Please tell us about your background and your professional affiliation. What areas do you consider yourself to be an expert? 
Thank you, Jazz. It's good to see both you and uh, Nemo. I'm extremely proud of you both. Uh, my name is Charles T. Brown. I was born and reared in Sugarlock, Mississippi. Make sure that's on record. Um, in terms of my background and my affiliation, you touched on it briefly, but what I want to say in addition to what you've already touched on is that I've gained international attention by conducting and leading uh, qualitative and quantitative research on understanding barriers to walking and biking for women, for racialized minorities, and low-income populations in the U.S. In addition to that, um, I've focused on the need to increase minority and low-income populations' access to biking and pedestrian infrastructure. And I have, for some time, both pre and post George Floyd, uh, helped shape the national conversation around understanding the impact that over-policing, police harassment, and citizen intimidation via anti-Black racism has had on Black, Indigenous, and other people of color in the U.S. And I, we may get into this, but my notable work on this includes my recent theory on arrested mobility, which asserts that Black people and other minorities have been historically and presently denied by legal and illegal authority this inalienable right to move, to be moved, or to simply exist in public space. And as both you and Nemo are aware, this has resulted, unfortunately, in adverse social, political, economic, environmental, and health effects that are widespread and intergenerational. Lastly, I would say in terms of my background, um, I identify as a self-proclaimed street-level researcher and a pracademic. And this has to do with the fact that I've worked diligently over the years through both qualitative and quantitative research to highlight the impact that crime and gender-based violence has had on women, older adults, and the BIPOC population. And so this has led to, of course, conducting focus groups around the country with a number of key minority groups with the goal to uh, identify ways to eliminate real and perceived concerns regarding crime and violence. I'm glad you mentioned that. And it's super timely as the episode we just released before this was around policing, um, public safety, but also public health and uh, how police and government um, or law enforcement interact with people on the streets, whether they are potentially in a mental health crisis, whether they are being served by another area of the government. Um, so I'm glad that today we get to talk about it from a transportation lens, something that Jasmine and I are really passionate about, and that's come up a lot on the podcast. You mentioned it a little bit, but I was wondering if you could get into more detail about what you consider to be the greatest barrier to active transportation for vulnerable populations. Uh, when it comes to the greatest barrier, I think sometimes the barrier, I'll talk about infrastructure, I'll talk about policies, et cetera. But one of the biggest barriers is the, is the fact that most people don't know there are barriers unique to racialized minorities in this country. And particularly um, people of color, um, women, persons with disabilities, and seniors. And so the barriers often include poor street design, that fear of harassment that I talk about. Talk about. And I point out harassment because too often in the transportation conversation, we only address the singular of safety. We don't address the duality of safety. 
However, the reality for many racialized minority groups, as well as the populations that I've mentioned, is that they have to deal daily with the duality of safety, concerns about whether or not they'll be struck by a car or hit by a car or some other motorized trans transport, or if they will be harmed by violence, by harassment, and by intimidation. And so what we need to do in terms of um, this conversation around barriers is have more conversations about it, but look beyond just poor street design and, um, and, and other, other things that we've talked about already. Thank you, Charles, for bringing up that point of the duality of safety. I agree that that is definitely an undermined point. I think in transportation, it's very easy because it has to be built to focus on that, the built environment. Are there crosswalks? Are there bike lanes? And if they're not, then that is deemed unsafe. But it doesn't acknowledge the fact that you can have all of the safety environment, environmental pieces that you need, but that might not make it safe for racial minorities or women to exist in that space. Does not think that's kind of the work of your arrested mobility work is the recognition that it's not just about the built environment. So I thank you for, for bringing that up. As we talk through those barriers, what are some policy recommendations, whether they're built environment policies or social policies that can be done to kind of reduce those barriers and improve safety outcomes? Yeah, I want to come back to that question. So please feel free to ask me that again. I want to touch on the arrest and mobility piece again to highlight why policy, this policy conversation that you're raising is important. So in the arrest and mobility theory, I point to three or four Ps that restrict the movement of black mobility in this country. And dare I say on a global scale, the first Ps that I combine our policy and planning. For instance, looking at racial residential segregation in this country and the impact that it has on access to everyday destinations. Uh, so there's policy and planning through that lens. We know urban planning in many ways has been racialized and it continues to perpetuate racism, structural racism, against people of color. So those first two Ps, policy and planning, I combine. The second or third P would be policing or enforcement. And when we think about policing, I'm talking about policing at the municipal level, the county level, the state level, as well as the federal level. Because when you are black or a person of color, your interactions with law enforcement matters, not the jurisdiction or the geography. You're treated pretty much the same throughout this country. The third P or the fourth P, depending on how you're counting this, is the P that is often overlooked, but is certainly gaining more and more momentum or more attention, I should say, in, in the media. And that is polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y. What polity is, is the self-deputization of non-Black citizens in this country who have historically, as well as through contemporary terms, had a relationship with policy planning and policing that they use or leverage to restrict intentionally or not the mobility of Black and Brown people. So when you talk about what policies are needed to reduce the barriers, 
we first need an acknowledgement of that oppression. Secondly, we need policies that lead to better street design, such as complete streets. I'm a huge fan of complete streets. And for those that are listening, complete streets are streets that are designed, operated, and maintained with all users in mind, regardless of their mode, regardless of their ability. The reason why I mentioned complete streets and emphasize all users and all modes is because historically in black and brown communities, we have not had complete streets. And where we have had them, we have not had maintenance to follow. And so that's why I want to emphasize maintenance. We cannot though ignore the policies that are on the books of many municipal and state governments as it relates to bicycle and pedestrian policies. As part of my arrested mobility work, I'm working with the New Urban Mobility Alliance, better known as NUMO, out of Washington, DC, where we are conducting a rigorous review of municipal and state level policies that have the potential to restrict the mobility of black and brown people in this country. But in this particular case, specifically black people. And I will tell you, it will shock you, the policies that we've already discovered that are being used in a discriminatory way um, against black people. There are policies that allow law enforcement um, based solely on suspicion to stop and at least engage a person of color or any person for that, that matter. It matters that it's any person because what we know is that disproportionately it ends up being people of color. So we need policy, we need planning, we need um, programs. We cannot ignore the importance of programs to such as Safe Routes to School and others, but we can normalize the importance of safety, mobility, and the importance of active transportation in our schools at a much early age. And then lastly, I think it's a shame in this country that you can get your driver's license and never really have to know what the rules or the road are for other modes other than automobiles. And I think that's something we need to change. So I'll stop there for now. It was really, as you were explaining the three P's, I was like kind of like the brain blasting emoji because the way I was processing it was the arrested mobility being the things that are holding specifically black people back from moving freely. Um, there's the actual physical piece, like the planning pieces that you mentioned in the built environment, but then with the polity and the enforcement sometimes, and even the prejudices that, that, that law enforcement carry when they make certain decisions um, is what you can't see. And those things that you can and can't see are, is what is holding people back, what is making people feel unsafe. Um, and that, that really just hit for me. Charles, can you talk more about policies um, that what can be done to address that third P, that politically P that you were talking about? Yeah, so, I mean, we have to go further upstream. I think this is where public health and transportation is starting to, has gotten it right in terms of the approach before I mention more specific policies. So there are many engineers and planners who say that when you look at like traffic fatalities, they say it's a result of behavior. The behavior is what is causing the mortalities that we see disproportionately in our communities. What they do 
is speak from a downstream standpoint. You have to move further upstream. And to illustrate what I'm saying is that if you see a mortality, that mortality in many ways was influenced, the behavior by that individual that is, by the built environment. Whether a person has safe access to and from their everyday destinations, is, you're probably going to see a very strong correlation to where traffic fatalities happen versus where you see adequate and safe infrastructure, pedestrian, bicycle infrastructure, and other. But before you get the infrastructure, the built environment, there are institutions that make decisions. And before you get to institutions, there exists a social construct that has divided us across race, ethnicity, class, gender, sexual orientation, and religion. It's that bi-directional relationship between those social inequities in these institutional inequities that create the built environment, that influence the behavior, that leads to the disparities in traffic fatalities. So as I often say, if you come across a black and brown person and they say the, the environment made me do it, believe them. So what policies do we need? Again, we need health equity policies so that this sort of framing becomes the norm. We also need racial equity action plans because we need to benchmark cities do, states do, counties do, the federal government does. They need to benchmark where they are currently and where they're going as it relates to addressing the disparities that we see across traffic fatalities and inaccessibility for black and brown bodies. Um, we also need um, more vision zero policies except less emphasis on the enforcement aspects of that. We need crime prevention through environmental design or SEPTED uh, as part of municipal ordinances, but being cognizant of the racialized history within that movement as well. And the emphasis on enforcement of black and brown bodies, we need to do away with that before it becomes ordinance. We need better access to public parks and open spaces. When you look at the bicycle movement in this country, first of all, many of the bicycle advocacy groups are overwhelmingly white and white male. They focus primarily on bicycle travel to and from work, whereas many racialized minorities want to ride for exercise and leisure, but they're not advocating for that to happen. Other policies um, that are needed, uh, I'm a huge fan of the electrification of school buses, but that's a whole other topic. We also need green infrastructure in this country. Uh, we know that many of our coastal areas that have predominantly black and brown and low-income populations are more likely to be burdened by uh, climate and the impacts of climate. So I can go on and on by way of policy if you have all night. Yes, we will bring you back for the environmental green conversation next season. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we'll bring season. you back, <laughs> uh, but not tonight. Um, so can I say I, something to that? Yeah. This is part of the challenge. We've been siloed. We've been forced to silo these issues as opposed to addressing them um, 
in a very intersectional way. I don't walk out of my house and think solely about an issue. Thus, I need government to act in response to addressing all of my issues, not putting them off to when it's convenient, like next season or the next episode. So I feel attacked. I feel no, you attacked. know you're not attacked. It's all love. It's all love. I'm just saying, like for real talk though, like yeah. that siloed nature, that siloed approach to government is part of the reason why we have the conditions we have in our culture today. We had a similar conversation on the last episode around policing and public safety. And the idea was that, you know, a police officer might intervene in a situation and then the next day a social worker comes out and nobody has any idea because the police department does this thing and they keep their files and the Department of Health and Human Services keeps their files and nobody has any idea that an officer and a social worker have both engaged with this family. And so in I think advocates consistently think about the interconnectedness of of those issues, right? Transportation, environment, land use, health, homelessness services, housing, but all those are separate departments and they all have separate budgets. They all have separate line items, separate commissioners, if you're thinking on the state level. And so there's a level of bureaucracy that creates a challenge to even think about those issues all together as they impact each other. So why do we accept that? That's the question. Why do we accept that? That's the way it is. That isn't the way it has to be. I think part of this conversation is about challenging social norms, especially when we consider that those norms in many ways have perpetuated the structural racism. But we can challenge that. We also need to do that when inside the academies, the way that this is taught is taught in a very siloed way, when life is much more nuanced, much more intersectional. And we are as people also, uh, our social identities are much more vast than what people talk about or what people might see, you know, in terms of our skin color. What about the fact that I'm ex-military? You don't see that when I'm jogging in my community. Perhaps if people saw that I wouldn't be, you know, or there wouldn't be an increased likelihood of me being Ahmaud Aubrey or Trayvon Martin. So we need to look at things in a much more intersectional way because we could see the whole of humanity and address the burden that they're facing. How do you feel that some of that kind of, I think the individual, looking at individual instances rather than looking at systems and structural racism and structural inequities, how do you feel like that plays into kind of the implementation of some of these well-meaning policies? Because I think what I'm getting at is kind of thinking of things on an individual level of like, oh, this just happened because of this and assigning reasons is kind of that downstream thinking you were referring to. And then the upstream is more so like, let's look at how the system and how the socialization of our environment has impacted. Um, so with that, how does that impact when the policies are actually then implemented by humans who have these ideals? And The system level thinking is the preferred way of thinking about addressing these issues. However, any system that is not diverse is inherently biased. In many of the systems that we see, the demographic makeup, particularly in planning, engineering, and this policy work, is not racially diverse. Thus, it continues to be biased in its implementation, implementation and execution. So we need a more diverse system 
one that is more considerate of the issues that black and brown people are are fighting in order for the systems level approach to happen because we all know that trees planted in minority communities mature just in time for gentrification to take place okay and i feel like with as we're having this conversation today around bicycle and pedestrian equity that some of the infrastructure pieces do get connected with gentrification. If people are physically seeing additions to their streetscape, then that draws concerns about what's what what's coming next for their neighborhood. How do you feel like the field is addressing some of those concerns from residents? I think this is an issue in our field. We make generalization about uh, how people feel based on the loudest voices. When I see improvements happening on my street, I think, yay, my property value just increased. I don't think gentrification is happening. But you I'm own, you're not a renter. And so you're not necessarily impacted as strongly by uh, market, quick market conditions. When I rented, I was happy to see the improvements happen because I felt too that I, um, I deserve those improvements. It's, it's not always that we quickly go to gentrification because we see investment happen. We go to gentrification because the investment is delayed. And with the delayed in investment comes new groups to our communities. So the timing of it is suspect. We see increase in whiteness in our community when we see increases in investments. If the investment happens before whiteness arrives, no one will be you know, sort of skeptical of the investment. But not all people are skeptical. Um, the research that I've done has stated, I asked the question, would you like a bicycle lane on your street? And 85% of the respondents, many of which were black and brown, said yes. I think too often, this is used as a reason not to invest in infrastructure in black and brown communities because the vocal minority have deemed it skeptical and, and fearful of those investments. I don't think it's true for everyone. At least the work I've done across this country has not. Is it, is it a concern? Yes. Do the majority feel that way, particularly black people? I would err on the side of no. Do you feel that it's the role of government to kind of break down in terms of engagement so that it's not just the loudest voices, but actually hearing some of what you're saying is like, I appreciate this new bike lane. It relates, I know at a time, the crosswalk outside of my apartment got repainted and I was like, I took a picture of it, put it on Twitter and everything. I was like, this is exciting. Um, and so it's like, but I may not necessarily be the loudest voice at a meeting. I may not necessarily have the numbers to represent how I feel about these improvements to advocate for the new project in the next fiscal year or you know, for the new re redesign of a certain road. Um, so I'm curious how to engage those. And we, I'm thinking about our episode earlier this season on community engagement, how to engage those who may not have the, the loudest voice or what, if, even if for folks listening now, what can you do if you do have positive feedback to share about what's happening on your street? Yeah, I think the people that, and when I say people, I'm speaking here about Black people that see these investments as a positive, they need to show up at these meetings and be more vocal about the benefits 
of these investments. I think they need to write about it more. They need to tweet about it. And they also need to run for political office so that they too can carry on more investment in these communities. For the people that are skeptical, that are afraid of gentrification resulting from these investments, we can do, we can bring forth policies um, to help combat some of that fear. And those policies that we can bring forth would be community benefit agreements that we can work with developers on to ensure that the community receives something from these investments. And by something, I don't, I'm not saying in any illegal way, I wanna be clear here. Another way we can do it is more affordable housing. Inclusionary zoning is a big piece. Um, also access to capital. Many of these communities, the banks have denied them access to uh, properly maintain their homes. That is structural racism. These people want to improve their communities, but there is no mechanism to do so when you're discriminated against by banks, by local government, and unseen forces. So if we just simply give more access to capital, which is why I'm advocating for reparations, both in infrastructure investments, as well as in improving or addressing the racial wealth gap. Notice I didn't say income, I said, well, uh, that will be important. I think we can overcome much of this through, through those avenues, along with a host of other policies. I wanna bring up um, just a follow-up to your, your last point regarding feelings around gentrification when certain built environment improvements occur. I think you brought up a, a good piece around the timing aspect of it. I think what strikes it to people as being a sign of gentrification is they've been trained through experience that when these things happen, we've been asking for this change. My grandmother asked for this change in her community. My mother asked for this change in her community and nothing was done about it. People have died in this crosswalk before and we complained and nothing was done about it. And now that this house is being torn down and is being rebuilt, now you wanna come in with the crosswalks and change it. I think that demonstrates to people that my body being in this place is undervalued by whatever jurisdiction is is governing it, whether it's the municipality or the county, but this other body is valued. And so we want to protect them. We want to make sure that they are protected from in shade and, and have quality parks and things like that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. We also have to be honest about how certain aspects of our community or certain members of our communities also view these investments, particularly the black and brown elite and how they too want to discourage certain individuals from coming into their towns. I just read an article where Dave Chappelle um, just spoke out uh, in his local town against an affordable housing um, investment. Um, so I won't touch on that further, but I agree with you. I think both things can be true. The problem in our community, though, is that this vocal 
minority appears as a majority and the majority doesn't always agree with that vocal minority. So it is true that yes, there are a lot of people who are concerned that investing in bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure will lead to gentrification that are black. But it is also true that there are many of people who see these investments through a positive lens and look forward to the increase in property values. I'm one of them. I'm also the one that is concerned about gentrification among my people. I think you can be both. Thank you for touching on that, Charles. And I think what I've really enjoyed about this episode um, and talking to you tonight is the what you said earlier, the intersectionality of it. Like, yes, we came on today to talk about bicycle and pedestrian equity, but we cannot talk about that without also talking about the the it's like equity is kind of like that blank space at the end or or the in the beginning when people say equity it's like of what and then thinking tonight we're specifically talking about how that affects black people mm-hmm. um and uh, i think it's important to be very specific and intentional um with how we ha- how we're having this conversation and really the historical context i think that you've helped outline tonight um and one thing we like to do before we close out with our guests is to have any takeaways um, that came up for you during the episode. I think for me, it's kind of that piece around the racial equity and the role of government and acknowledging where they are and where they need to go. And that in where they need to go, that arrow that's looking out into the future, it needs to address, it needs to address the structure and the system, not just the individual, maybe some of those individual aspects, maybe some of the loudest voices or some of the loudest complaints that they're hearing and addressing those is one thing, but not addressing the system that they are currently existing in is a whole other thing. Um, Jasmine, what were some of your takeaways? The biggest takeaway for me from Charles's conversation were the three P's around his arrested mobility research, um, particularly that last P around self-deputizing of of people and their ability to impact policy and planning um, and programs. And so I'll be taking that with me and thinking through that further. And before we go, I also wanna bring up a point that I'm always raising no matter where I'm at, whether that's in conversation with the Washington Post, the New York Times, the universities, or among a global audience. Why no conversations about who is actually striking pedestrians on our roadways. We know everything about the person hit, who they are, where they're from, and where the crash happened. What we don't know is anything about the perpetrators. Who are we protecting by not asking the question, who is killing, intentionally or not, pedestrians and cyclists on our roadways? Who are we protecting and why? I think it has a lot to do with the fact that whether we want to recognize this or not, many of us planners, policy people, <clears throat> excuse me, we're privileged. And most of us identify more so with the person driving the car than the person walking down the street. And thus we make excuse for their behavior while demonizing the behavior of the pedestrian that finds themselves a victim on the other end of a crash. Why no conversations about that? Thank you so much, Charles. And I thank you for the for that note to end us. Um, I be not even gonna follow up. There's no that's the mic drop. <laughs> There's no hook on that beat is necessary. And I'm just gonna leave it there. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us today. 
Um, and uh, um, if you all want to continue this conversation, um, Charles also has a podcast on the arrested mobility topics that he shared earlier. Um, and you can find that on streaming platforms um, that whichever you prefer, um, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And we drop episodes every other Tuesday. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, Joe.